Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church on this Mother's Day uh, Sunday. And we're going to do something that we haven't done in quite a while, and that is to take a break from our series and to have a message which is catered in particular to the topic of mothering and the high call and the great honor that God does grant to moms. And, and I want to ask the moms just for a moment and the grandmas to stand up for a moment. Can we just recognize you real quickly? You don't have to be shy. You know, God has given to our church so many children and so many young ones, and, and you parents know how much these children uh, need their moms. When my, mom, uh, uh, when my wife has to use the ladies' room, Piper will literally lie stomach down at the closed door waiting for her to be done. She is uh, her shadow. She tries to learn everything from her. Uh, mothers, you are often our first teachers, our first chefs, our first nurses, our first friends, our first best friends. Trent used to tell Laura that when he grows up, He's going to marry her. That's not, don't laugh. That's threatening. He, he does that while looking me dead straight in the eye. But, but there's a special relationship, and, and God has designed it, that moms are also our first missionaries, just like we heard from the testimonies, our first evangelists, our first preachers that we ever get to hear, our first shepherds whom we follow their lead. I know for many of us, the very first time we had ever heard the name Jesus, it came from the lips of mom. The very first time anyone cared for and prayed for our souls, which such fervency, it was on mom's elbows and her knees with her eyes closed, hand in hand, save this child of mine. Please make this one your own. And, and that's often done on the same day as getting spaghetti out your hair or helping you with homework or teaching you how to drive. Parents and especially mothers, before any of us could ever read the Bible or understand anything about God, you act as a sort of mediator between us and God. When we're young, we pretty much believe everything that you tell us to believe. We copy pretty much everything that you do. Our initial and our first ideas about anything, but especially about God, they come from watching you, and we drink it all in. William Arnaud, he's an old Scottish minister, he writes this, there's here something corresponding to nursing. Great must be the delight of a mother herself renewed when she becomes a channel through which the milk of the word flows into her child. You know, mothers, as you eat of God's word, we drink it from you. Our primary thoughts and our first habits are developed in us by you, and they are foundational. They direct our course. They steer our ship. You get to form so much of our very character. John Piper, he says, the family is a school, and it is where you teach us how to live in this world, and to be ready for the next one. And I know that there are many in this room who are not mothers or who are not grandmothers and whatnot, but I would hope that all of us uh, could be and would be edified as we open God's word to bless the moms here on this Mother's Day weekend. So please take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 20 Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 23 is our passage today. That's on page 531 if you are using the church Bible. Page 531, right near the middle of your Bibles, right after the book of Psalms. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. Before we look at the text, please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and this time of worship. 
And we thank you for our moms and, and their faithfulness, which, which really uh, points to your faithfulness. Even as we celebrate and honor them, God, we celebrate and honor you who, who, have, who has given them to us. Would you please encourage them and bless them and encourage and bless the rest of your church with them for your good and for your glory and our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Proverbs, or much of the book of Proverbs, is, at least is written by King Solomon. And King Solomon is the son of King David. And it is Solomon who, when God said, ask what you wish me to give you in 1 Kings 3, 5, whatever you want, pretty much, Solomon replied, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. And so Solomon did not use that opportunity to ask for a long life, a more fortified military. He didn't ask for more riches or the defeat of his enemies. But what Solomon asked for was discernment, and what he wanted most was wisdom. And God gave that to him. God gave to him such a wise and understanding heart that there has never been anyone like Solomon prior to him, nor will there be anyone like Solomon again, 1 Kings 3.12. And so he writes these verses from this great and really supernatural discernment and from this vast wisdom, but really more than that, is God who writes this chapter of the book of Proverbs through this King Solomon. And so we read again in chapter 6, verse 20, where he writes, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. You know, in a day and an age where people want to break down the family unit, and separate and redefine marriages and even detach children from their parents in a culture and a, a, of extreme individualism, this redefinition of what a modern family is. In the midst of all of that, the timeless wisdom of God speaks here and upholds the original family unit. And it's here in these verses that we see that parents have a great responsibility over their children to command them and to teach them in such a way that it is God's own will that their children should listen and not forsake what it is that they have learned from their parents. Parents have a great influential role and that is a God-given design. You know, there's a period of time where my only exposure to Christianity was my mom. My parents got married when they were very young and they got divorced when they were very young as well. I was a year old and so I came to hear came to live in um, Kaimuki with my grandparents. And when our family ended up moving to the mainland several years after that, my mom had become a Christian in the meantime. And she was really the only believer I'd ever really met. I got to live with her for two years. And she would read the Bible to me and, and pray for me. She got me a little children's Bible and she took me to church. She made sure that I would never miss church for pretty much anything whenever she had me. And we didn't have much. She was broke back then. We had no furniture, no TV. The bed was on the floor, but we had the Word of God. And I would stare at the cover of that children's Bible with Jesus walking on the seashore. I'm not sure if it was an entirely accurate depiction of what he looked like, but there were all these little kids around him, and and I honestly couldn't tell you a single devotional she taught to me with any kind of detail. But I know that the cumulative effect has been huge. And God had used my mom and her prayers and her early devotion to the Lord in a very substantial way in my life. And in fact, it it was when we didn't have all that much that God's goodness was most clearly felt. And I see the same thing in my house today, watching my wife, Laura. She teaches the kids to read their Bibles. She prays with them, especially when they have offended each other, which can be pretty often in our house. She tells them about God's grace. 
She tells him about how much we need to be forgiven, and that's how we get to be reconciled with them. She's not afraid to discipline them. And then at night in bed, when the day is over, sometimes mid-sentence when I'm talking to her, I look over and she's, she's knocked out. She's spent. And our kids at, at, at these ages, the repetition of the day after day can be mundane and draining. I'm sure it is for many of you younger parents. But we are hoping for the cumulative effect as well that one day my kids will cling to what they have learned and not forsake how they have been raised. That's God's design. I know that many of you have experienced the same thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes there to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, of faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. You see that chain? And I think it's interesting to know that the men are not even mentioned in those verses. Who knows if they were even Christian? And I want to encourage you moms whose husbands are not found in Christ, don't lose hope. Keep praying, and, and the best heirloom and the finest legacy that you can leave to your children is your faith. Now, there are many things that we will learn from our moms and our grandmas, but the things that why Solomon is telling us not to forsake is the word of God which first richly dwelt in our mothers and our moms mediating that to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ that you moms treasure is the same gospel that you communicate to the next generation. Now, there are many good things that we learn from our moms, family tradition, common sense, inside jokes, how to laugh, how to cook, how to eat, how to save, how to study hard. I'm Korean, study hard. How to dribble a basketball. But the thing that we should hold most dearly to is God's word that she passes to us, her religion, her Christianity mediated to us. That's the main thing. That's the main wisdom in these verses. Our moms do teach us a lot of things, but the focus here is that our moms are the ones who bring to us the word of God and not merely her own word. And so Solomon assumes that mothers are teaching their children God's word and the wise command to children, if you're a child listening here, is don't forsake what your moms teach you. Your moms and their love for Christ, their trust in God, their reverence of him and his word, it's been tested by them. And it's been given to you by them, and we're commanded to never forsake it. Verse 21, we continue. Solomon says, bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around our neck. What our parents teach us and give to us, it's these things that we're to bind or fasten or attach upon our hearts, and we're to tie them around our neck. Bind and tie, that's the visual, is that the word is so close to us that wherever we are, there it is. Now, the heart, uh, the concept of the heart to the Old Testament Israelite, we don't, we don't quite have an equivalent word in the English language. For the Israelite, the, the heart controls the body, not, not the brain. Not the, not the central nervous system. The heart controls the body. The heart even makes your facial expressions, the smile, the tongue, the many members. It's the heart in their minds that dictates it. It's, where, it's in the heart, not the belly. It's in the heart where hunger and thirst are felt. It's the heart that controls the mind, the intellect, our sensibility, our will. It's the heart that thinks. It's the heart that reflects. It's the heart that meditates and ponders and interprets everything that is around us. All these things are attributed to the heart. It's the heart that plans. 
It's in the heart where decisions are made. It's in the heart where a person can acknowledge God and trust God. It's the heart that desires. It's the heart that reveres. And the heart which can even feel remorse. Warnings against sin in the Bible are directed at the heart because it's the heart that controls our actions and the heart that discerns what is real and what is just deception. And it can be called wise and pure, or it can be called perverse and wicked. The heart condition is the spiritual condition. And so there's no English word today which can fully describe this concept of the heart as the person reading the Proverbs originally would hear it. Their heart was the very center of all a person's emotional activity, all of their intellectual activity, their religious activity, and even their physical activity. And it is upon that very heart that we are to bind God's word onto that we have heard from mom and dad. Parents are, are very influential upon their children. And their word, which is God's word, is to be the very center of who we are to govern and influence absolutely everything about it. And not just when we hear, when their mouths are open, and then when they're closed, we forget it. No, Solomon writes here clearly, always, continually. That means repeatedly. Everywhere we go, these things are to be ever-present and bound to this heart, attached to it. We are never to lay them aside. Bind them continually on your heart. He also writes to tie them around your neck. Our mother's teaching it's like a necklace. God's word is, is it's like a necklace. It's beautiful. It's, it's meant to be seen. Always upon us, always adorning us. We're, we're feeling the weight of it and the impression of it on our necks. If we're seeing, God's word is seen. Our mothers don't just put on diapers and nice clothing and rub sunscreen on our back. They lay upon our necks the very word of God. They're the ones who give us this necklace. And it's something we never outgrow. It never gets stained, it never fades, it never goes out of fashion. We never have to get a new one. It's always relevant. It is our most precious ornament, more beautiful than any family heirloom, more precious than any inheritance that you could ever leave us. Is God's word passed from generation to generation, adorning us and directing us. Never should we be ashamed or embarrassed, but we wear our mother's treasure we wear your religion on our necks as our most valuable possession. And I remember hearing Kevin DeYoung, he wrote one of the books we used in our small groups a few semesters back, Taking God at His Word. Some of you guys remember that. At a pastor's conference we were at, they asked him, who anchored you in the Bible? I think the crowd was expecting some kind of influential pastor, some great scholar, maybe a famous preacher or some mentor early in his life. Who anchored you in the Bible? He responded quickly, my parents did. They anchored me in the Bible. John Piper, when asked, that's the small group book we're using right now. How did you come to believe this book is true? He answered quickly again, because my mama told me it's true. How children generally receive a high view of the Word of God is through the adults in their lives who have a high view of the Word of God. Now, we strive as a church to impress this truth in our little hearts from day one, but really it's you moms and you dads that bind these truths on our hearts and hang them on our necks. You do more than what the church can do because you're at home with them all the time so that when we get old, we will not depart from it. You know, moms, you have a, a very high calling. And so many of us grown children now have to thank you more than we can thank anyone else that we actually believe the Word of God is true. 
and all of your hours of serving us selflessly will bear fruit for years and years and years later. Just wait. Verse 22, we continue. He says, when you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. These are the effects of mom's teaching. This teaching passed down from our parents, God's word given to us from our moms is personified here. It takes a life of its own to be our guide, our guard, and our friend. When we walk about, her teaching guides us, leads us to safety. The visual is almost like a shepherd guiding sheep. God's word leads us out of and from every dangerous path. You know, mother, some of you have very obedient children, and you, when you say, this is how you ought to live, they actually say, all right, this is how I'm going to live. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Be thankful for that. Some of you don't have that kind, those kinds of children. My mom did not. She could teach me all day. I didn't bind that to my heart. I didn't wear it as an ornament on my neck. I threw it into a well, cast it into the deepest, darkest cave as far and as hidden as I could throw it. I lived so much of my life without thinking about how my decisions might have scarred her or kept her up at night or offended her God. But even then, the, the deepest wells and the darkest caves, they still echo. And it's as if her very own voice telling me about God would whisper into my ear, don't go any further down this path. The image of her praying for me was burned into my retinas. And for me to keep going down that path, I would have to work to shut my ears to that voice if I wanted to continue. And it's as if some of our own moms are standing between us and hell and saying, you're not going to go there without fighting me. That's their voices in our minds. And yet it's God's word. And I want to encourage you moms, some of your children might not bind your teaching immediately to their hearts. But we cannot judge before the time when your upbringing in the word of God will continue to do in the lives of your children. We don't know the end of the story yet. And so please, please press on and persevere. Do not lose heart. Keep praying. It is instantaneous for some. It may take years for many others. Pray unceasingly. Some of the testimonies we hear, they're young teenagers. Some of them are not teenagers. Pray unceasingly, not as we will, but as God wills for the salvation of our children. And so our mother's teacher teaching will often act as a guide for us, but it's also a guard, Solomon says. When you sleep, they will watch over you. We may sleep, but God's word does not. The image is, is, is super interesting. It, it, it shows protection even when we seem defenseless, even when we seem unconscious. It's our guard. And when we toss and turn because of the stresses of life and those worldly thoughts begin to haunt us, God's word will actually watch over you. Charles Spurgeon, he writes, when you're busiest, your religion shall be your best help. When your hands are full of toil and your head is full of thought, Nothing can do you more service than to have a God to go to, a Savior to trust in, a heaven to look forward to. When you go to your bed to, be sleep, to sleep or to be sick, you can have nothing better to smooth your pillow and to give you rest than to know that you are forgiven through the precious blood of Christ and saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. And there's no more delicious sleep in the world than that sleep which even in dreams keeps near to Christ. God's word given to us by you moms can somehow even watch us in our sleep. 
And nothing can give to us a more peaceful rest than the truth of the gospel that is found in his word that puts everything back into its right perspective. It's a mother's protection for us. It's her lullaby to us. The word of God can even guard us as we sleep. And so the teaching is a a guide. Your teaching is a garden. It's also a friend. Solomon writes, and, and when you awake, they will talk to you. Your teachings actually converse with us. This is personification again. F.P. Myrie says the heart is accustomed to commune with itself. We talk to ourselves about many things. But when the mind is full of God through his word, it seems as though the monologue becomes a dialogue. Our minds actually become filled with two voices. We think our thoughts, and then God inserts his thoughts, and God's word speaks to us, and we respond, and we wrestle with it. It reasons alongside of us. Those of you who are in the word of God, you know what this feels like. It's a true friend. It it never falsely flatters us. It always tells us as it is, honestly and openly. The Word of God is never scared to point out our faults, even as some of our friends are scared to do that for us. And yet at the same time, it always comforts us to press on, to continue to be sanctified. The, The Word of God is so personal. It knows us like no one else knows us. Steve Lawson, he says, I have read many books, but this is the only book that has read me. It doesn't just speak about sin in general, but about my sin. It talks about my doubts. It talks about your personal trials and your personal temptations. It talks about your specific struggles. And even if no one else struggles the same way that you do, even if others might laugh at what we might struggle with, God's word sympathizes with the weak and the trembling. It doesn't only scold and yell, although it does scold and yell when it needs to. But it comes alongside of us and encourages us shows us the heights of heaven. It shows us the depths of the valley. Charles Spurgeon, again, it thunders like God, and yet it weeps like a man. This is a living book. And oh, how you moms have illustrated it and will continue to illustrate it. They teach us the word of God with their lips, yes, but they embody it. For who knows us more than our moms? Who knows our faults and our imperfections, our our weaknesses, what we struggle with, and yet who at the same time still stoops to us and feels our struggles as if they were her very own? I mean, who is not the one scared to scold us, but at the same time comfort us and encourage us? There's nothing too little for mom to take notice of. There's nothing too big that she won't look past that in loving us. And so how can it be that our mother's teachings and the Word of God are so alike each other because what so richly dwells in our moms is, is being mediated to us, which is why Solomon can write about our mother's teaching and we see the benefits that can only be true of God's Word. God's Word is our guide, our guard, and our friend, and yet her teaching is our guide, our guard, and our friend because the Word of God spills right out of her. I mean, this is how important it is to be a mother. This is how important your faith is, sisters. Now, the same faith is often found in your children years later. And it's a very high calling. This is a very great privilege. This is a very gracious honor that you moms would spend and be spent in passing this word to us. We continue in verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. God's word is a light here, a lamp, and it sheds light on everything. It's the brightest lamp there is. 
And in this context, it's really being used as a guard against adultery specifically, but I think the principle is much broader. What our parents teach us illuminates our path. And by this light, we can see things for what they truly are. We can see pitfalls up ahead. We can see where the dangers lie. It exposes the deceptions of the world. It shows us its empty promises. Under this lamp, the lies of sin can't stay hidden. By its light, the devil's schemes are brought out into the open. This lamp shows us that the grass is not greener on the other side. And so we're not tempted to go to the other side. It lights, shows everything around us, and yet it also illuminates stuff inside of us. We see ourselves for who we really are and not just the best face that we put forward to other people. But it exposes our faults and our sin and its consequences. It shows us what we really believe and doesn't lie to ourselves about what we truly love, and and that's a good thing. The Word of God shines this light so that we might see deep into the path and deep into eternity, and not just for the next five years or 10 years or 25 years before us. It shows us where all the paths lead, what paths are eternal and what paths are merely passing, what leads to dead ends. It shows us which path leads to life, which is the narrowest one. And it shows us the paths which leads to death, which are the widest ones. It shows us the future, the finish line, the glories of heaven, the crowd of witnesses, so that we might run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. The word of God is bright. Our mother's instruction is from this lamp. Now we've learned from you moms, not just in hearing, but in seeing all of these things come to light, that knowing God is more important than having riches, that having Christ is what really makes you rich. That a home filled with God's word is better than a home filled with furniture. How in our weakest moments we can actually be our strongest. How God can ordain sorrow and even suffering for our own good and for his glory so that we might rejoice even as we do suffer. These lessons are not just heard, but these lessons are witnessed in our moms. And oh, how bright that light can be. We might not ever remember the exact words that come out of your lips, but we remember what we've seen by your light. Solomon also writes, the reproofs for discipline are a way of life. Now, reproof and rebuke is often seen as inconsistent with love in the church. There's a lot of churches who are scared to rebuke their family because they're scared their family will leave. Sometimes we're scared to rebuke because it seems like it's not loving. That's not true. If a mother never rebuked her child, she hates her child. There's a, even a, a deeper depth of love in stern reproof because it's a love that is not afraid. It's a love that is bold. It's a love that stands for what is true and stands for what is right and what is best for the person that you are loving. It's a love that understands the danger of sin. Again, the context of this chapter is a warning against adultery. But all sin, like adultery, is rooted in the promise of pleasure for the small price of disobedience. And thus, love wants to expose that. That's not a small price. The pleasure's small. It shows us the past sin wants to drag us into and our children. Jesus, he he spoke of, of hell frequently. He talked of judgment all the time. He talked about sin on almost every page in the gospel accounts. And yet Jesus loves us more than any other. And so there's no inconsistency with love and reproof. 
George Lawson, he writes, the threatenings of hell guard the way to heaven. That's how it is. Reproof is like the guardrails on the way to the celestial city. And so rebukes guide us, reproofs lead the way, and our moms love us deeply enough to reprove us. They'll never sit silent if they see us hell-bound. She will warn us, restrain us, even physically if she has to. Her reproof, her rebuke is out of love, and her teaching is light. It's God's word mediated by her to us. And the main business of the entirety of God's word is to show us Jesus Christ. You know, some of you guys might be new here today. This is what we call the gospel message. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. We have all sinned. Our children have sinned. We have sinned. All of us are in danger of appearing before a just and a righteous and a holy God. That's our creator. I mean, who can honestly stand before him? Just review your worst thoughts this past week. You think you can stand before God with those? This is the holy and almighty God. And yet God in his love, he sends his son pure and perfect and utterly sinless to stand before himself instead of us. And even as we learn instruction from our mothers and as we fail to obey things, we realize, you know what? There's only been one who has been completely faithful. There's only been one child utterly obedient. There's only been one person who has been sinless, and that is Jesus. And it's this Jesus, this perfect Jesus, who lives this perfect life of obedience. He willingly and lovingly says, give me their punishment. Give me their punishment and give them my reward. He takes, he took the cross and he dies upon it before God, absorbing all the wrath of God against our sin instead of us. So that whoever, and that whoever is such a sweet word, it excludes no one. All races, all social standings, any kind of sin, even the deepest skeleton in your closet, whoever shall confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. To repent like we heard from the testimonies. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to live for you instead. That person shall be forgiven of everything and have eternal life. If only this whoever would put their trust in him and in Christ alone. And as Jesus was raised from death to life, so shall we to know fully and experience completely this beautiful and glorious God who so graciously saved our souls. This is ultimately the message that shines forth from you mothers. The greatest thing you could ever teach us is Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected with your lips, with your hearts, with your actions, with your love, with your reproof, with everything that you do for us. Bind that to our hearts, brothers and sisters so that we may lay our hands upon our chest and say, right here is a lot of light that my mama gave me. You know, moms, you do things of eternal consequence and eternal good. And so we thank you and want to encourage you to press on, even if we don't appreciate it right away. God willing, one day all our children will. And what joy there will be at that moment if God so wills. You know, mom, sometimes a, a message like this just makes everyone feel all guilty. This doesn't mean you're perfect, Proverbs like this. We know you're not perfect. 
We know your imperfections and your weaknesses. You know ours as well. We know we've seen you lose your temper. We've seen you have meltdowns. We have seen you at your worst. You've seen us at our worst. There's not a denial of sin in this relationship, but we get to see your Savior in you. And we know what sacrifice means just by watching you. And it gives flesh to the abstract. It gives something concrete to hang our hat on. We've seen you lay down your life for us. And it shows us how Christ lays down his own life for others. This is what uh, Rachel Jankovic says. She's a writer for Desiring God. She says, at the very heart of the gospel is sacrifice. And there's perhaps no occupation in the world so intrinsically sacrificial as motherhood. Whether you do it perfectly or not. Whether you're losing your temper or not. Your children know your sacrifice. And it puts flesh on the sacrifice that is apparent in the gospel. And you do that for us mothers. And we want to encourage you to stay the course, to teach Jesus Christ above all things, not the world and Christ, not sports and Christ, not academics and Christ, not building barn houses and Christ. Teach us Christ above all things, not forcing it or coercing it into us, but modeling him in such a way that our children and our grown children can see and savor God and see and savor your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our moms, and as we honor them, we really honor you. Again, as we celebrate them, we celebrate truly your faithfulness and your goodness that we get these witnesses of who you are in our life for so many years. And so we praise you and, and worship you and thank you for giving us our moms. And many of us here don't have Christian moms. And yet we praise you anyway. And many of us here are the first Christians in our families. And we marvel how you still save, even though we didn't have that lamp in our childhood. You really are a God of salvation. But will you please, by your unending grace and mercy, encourage us here and Encourage our mothers specifically to press on and to be much in your word. Would you give them energy? And even in the mundane things, would you give them joy? Would you help them feel the weight of the mantle of motherhood? And yet, let it be their great desire to wear it. Would you please have our moms here treasure Christ above all things? And would you please save the children of Hawaii Kai Church? We thank you for salvation. We thank you for forgiveness of sin. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you, Father, for Jesus and the Holy Spirit who convicts us of him. Thank you for not withholding anything good from us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.